Psalm 138 is where we're going to end. So I want you to turn there. Um, so Brother Earl, you can't yell at me until we're done, okay? That's the rule for tonight. The Bible is constantly speaking to our hearts if we're willing to listen. And one of the things, uh, and you, you know this, as we, as we grow in our Christian walk and as we read our Bible through, and as we read it again and again and again, we see new things every time. And one of the hardest, uh, I, have, I have a whole lot of sympathy for preachers in the month of December, because since we've had the Bible, it's the Christmas story. What, I mean, Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph, the other people involved, it's got to be hard to come up with new ideas. But as I was reading the Christmas story, listening to preaching in the last couple of weeks, I noticed something. And that's what we're going to talk about this evening. Uh, the Bible is constantly teaching us based on the situations in our life, because the situations change. Um, as we look back over the year, so many things in our lives have changed since January 1st of 2022. And that's not a bad thing. Now, there may be situations that were hard for us to handle, things that made us stretch ourselves, maybe some things that were difficult for us to accept at the moment. But this, uh, this message is centered around the idea that each one of us, not just in the year past, not just in the year coming before our life, live in the midst of difficult situations. And as, as I read the Christmas story again, and we will we'll, we'll reference the Christmas story. We're not actually going to read the story because we have to be out of here soon, okay? Uh, but all of us know Matthew chapter 1, uh, where Mary is found with child. We know Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, where the angel comes and talks to Zechariah and to Elizabeth and to Mary and the birth of Jesus and the travel to the temple and meeting Simeon and meeting Anna and all of the events that surround the, the birth of our Savior. We're going to talk about those, but Lord willing, tonight, we're going to look at them from a different perspective. Because as I studied each one of these people, each one of them is in the midst of difficulty. Each one of them is facing situations they have no control over and they don't know what to do. And I'd never seen that before. And so as we look at this, uh, we, we want to look at their situation. Because you think of the Christmas story, oh, Mary, she's carrying the Messiah. What a wonderful thing. Yes and no. Joseph decides to follow the angel's advice and, and, and keep Mary as his wife. He said, well, that was a good decision for him. Yes and, and, and no. Because there was fallout from that decision. And so, as we look at this story tonight, we want to we look not just at the big picture. We want to look at each one of the people in this. Uh, this tonight, Lord willing, we're going to look at the trouble that is in Christmas. But before we begin, let's pray. Father, we need your help tonight. I need your help tonight. Lord, I need you to focus my mind and my heart on your word. I need you to speak through me, Lord. Put me out of the way. Father, would you allow your word to speak? Father, I need you tonight. Each one of us needs you. We need, we need to feel your hand on us. We need to see your power. 
We need your wisdom. Would you find each one of us open and willing to do what you ask us to do? And Father, most of all, would you give us wisdom to take action on it? Father, we don't desire to be the same people we were when we walked in tonight. We desire to be different. So Lord, would you speak to our hearts, be with our pastor. Lord, give him the strength that he needs. And Lord, and then bring him back safely to us this week, Lord, for Sunday. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Now, I understand this is odd. We're not reading scripture at the beginning. But as I said, we're going to start with the story in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. You know those stories, and we don't necessarily have time to read them. But if you would, stick your pen or your finger or whatever in Psalm chapter 138. That's where we're going to be eventually. Psalm 138. And look at Matthew chapter 1 with me, if you would. Matthew chapter 1. As we go through the story, we're just going to look at each one of these people. But as you're turning there, I want to read you some verses. In Psalm 25, verse number 17, the Bible says, The troubles of my heart are enlarged. O bring thou me out of my distresses. In Psalm 107, four times. In Psalm 107, the Bible says, Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. I find many times as I read the Scripture, especially the Christmas story, we think of it in the pictures that we have melded into our minds. Okay? We think of the Christmas story and we think of baby Jesus in a manger, Mary and Joseph, there's a cow, there's a donkey, there's a chicken, the shepherds show up, all right? If you had really bad theology as a kid, then the three wise men show up, and everybody's standing around, we're just worshiping the Messiah. But what I find is if I read my Bible with the intention of understanding not just what I think is going on, but understanding what's happening in the situation in the day and age, there's a whole lot more going on than that's what necessarily is spelled out in the text of the Scripture. And so we're Matthew, you're in Matthew chapter 1, verse number 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus was on this wise. This is how it happened. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. That's where we begin the story. Mary is a spouse to Joseph. Now, we're going to set the stage for this. We're going to jump out. We're going to come back to Mary and Joseph. But, but in Bible times, we may not understand what a spouse means. It's not like dating, okay? A spouse is, whether it's set up by the parents or by, by the people who will eventually be married, in Bible times, a spouse is literally as good as getting married. The only way you get out of it is by divorce based on some kind of uh, unfaithfulness. That's the only way out. And so Mary and Joseph, while they don't live in the same house, all right, they are unofficially married. All right? And as a result of that, everything that is expected in marriage, in terms of me being faithful to my wife, my wife being faithful to me, talking about decisions, making plans, everybody together, that is expected in this situation. The birth of Jesus begins with this, this stage 
of Mary and Joseph looking forward into a life together. Now, before we jump into that, we have to set the backstory. All right? You don't have to turn there, but Luke chapter 1, we find the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So let's start with Elizabeth tonight. This is going to sound terrible. I want to warn you ahead of time, it's going to sound terrible up until the end. But wait for the punchline, okay? Elizabeth is an old lady. All right, for lack of a better phrase, she's married to a preacher, okay? And uh, she's been married to a preacher for a long time. She has no children. And her husband, this specific year, is the high priest. He's the top guy. He has all the responsibility. He's expected to be there all the time. And she, as we read, as we read Luke chapter 1, we find she's the major fact in her life. There's two major things that are pointed out to us. First of all, that they followed the law. Elizabeth and Zechariah abided by the commandments given in the law. And the second thing we're told is that she's barren. She has no children. And we find out a couple of verses later, they're old. Okay, not like, oh, we're in our 60s. No, they're pushing 80. Now, if you're 80 and you say, I'm not old, I didn't mean it that way, okay? <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, think about this. Elizabeth and Zechariah are about to have a life change. This isn't like a midlife crisis. This is like an end-of-life crisis. This is a big deal, okay? Those of you who are, are in your 60s and over... I want you to contemplate this. Raising a child. Again. Yeah, Brother Grace said, nope, nope, I, you can't pay me enough to do that. I know. This is why we have children when we're young. Why? Because we can handle it, kind of. <laughs> but think about Zechariah. This is, I, I, I've already said this, I want to stress this. This is where the Bible comes alive. Think about Zechariah. He's the high priest this year. His entire year has been consumed with the temple. Leading up to this high point when he, as the high priest, almost said has to. He doesn't have to. He gets to go into the Holy of Holies. That's a huge responsibility. It's such a big responsibility, they tie a rope around your ankle. Because if you didn't get your life together and you go in and you die, we ain't coming in after you. We're pulling you out. Zechariah goes into, I, I mentally, I, I started thinking through this today, mentally, the preparation that he has to go through, not just, okay, i got to be right with God, but i got to make sure my affairs are in order because in case. i got to make sure that Elizabeth is provided for and, and I said goodbye. I gave her a second kiss on the way out the door this morning, whatever. And he, he goes in there, then, okay, I'm going to go in there with the blood, we're going to perform the duties, and I'm leaving. And while he's in there, he gets to talk to an angel. Okay? This was not in the script. It was not in the plans. All of a sudden, an angel shows up. The thing that boggles my mind, Brother Earl, is when an angel shows up, people are like, oh, okay, we'll have a conversation with them. I don't think that would be it. That wouldn't mean the top three. Oh, when an angel shows up, I want to talk to them. I think shock, falling down, and then trying to figure out if I really saw what I really saw would be the top three for me. Zechariah has a conversation with this angel, and the angel says, hey, I got great news for you. God's heard your prayer. You're going to have a baby. What? Run that once more. Uh, I, 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 this is... And because Zechariah struggles with the faith that is needed, I can't, I can't blame him. 
Okay? Put together, I'm old. I'm in a place that very few people in the history of Israel have ever gone. And I'm talking to an angel. I'd have had a lot of questions if I had still been talking. But think about this. Because of his faith, then he has nine months of silence. At least nine months of silence. He can't explain himself. He can't come out and say, let me tell you what happened. Zechariah, what's the problem? He, did, he doesn't get to speak. Imagine all the things that are pent up in his brain trying to express this. And then he goes home. And he has to explain this to Elizabeth at 80 years old. We're going to have a baby. You need to leave, okay? We're not talking about this. But that's what God, that's what God does. Now, all of that, think about the social repercussions. Imagine if an 80-year-old couple in our church, all of a sudden, there's like, hey, we're going to have a baby. We'd be like, what do you say to that? This is where they're living. Elizabeth, either by embarrassment or shock, she isolates herself for five months. Elizabeth and Zachariah's life has completely been turned upside down by a good thing, but turned upside down. And now they have to raise a son. Now, their son will become one of the people, when we, when we look at God's word in his ministry, first names that pop up, John the Baptist. But set aside the fact that it's John the Baptist at 80, raising a son. I I got one, and I'm 40. I only got, I'm glad there's one. I am. Now, the Lord knew what he's doing, but imagine going through that. Parenting at 80. Their life is turned completely upside down. You say, well, it's not a bad thing to have a child. A child, I agree. But the context in which this is happening causes some ripples at the least. But let's talk about somebody else. What about Mary? You read Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. You find out some things about Mary. First of all, her character is beyond reproach. She is, if you made a list of all the people in the temple, all the young ladies, eligible young ladies, she's at the top. Joseph is also at the top. You say, well, we're not, supposed to, we're not supposed to be worried about what people are doing. Well, yeah, but the Bible tells us we're supposed to live according to the guidelines that we've been given. God's word. In their case, the law. And Mary qualifies. She's not perfect, but she, man, she's, she's A+. And then she has a meeting with an angel. Now, this is a question I wondered about. There's no answer to this. I realize this. But I wonder how many people believed that Mary saw an angel before Christ's ministry started. All right, if we had a young lady who came to church, oh, I'm pregnant, and I saw an angel, we'd be like, okay. Think about this. This completely changes her life. She has her life before her, and now everything's different. She had a, quote, holy vision 
And that's what we would treat it like if somebody showed up. We'd be like, okay, an angel. We would. Her family. Her friends. The people at the temple. The only person that we see in Scripture that we know, there's two people that believe. Joseph, after he talks to an angel, and Elizabeth. But you have to wrap your mind around this. The public's view of her as a lady. Think about, okay, so let's throw another curveball in. Some of you have raised sons, and you've experienced the joy of that. And it is a joy. Imagine raising the Messiah. I've had to apologize to my son quite often because I did something I ought not to, or I said something I shouldn't have, or I was wrong. Imagine raising the Messiah. Then this, this thought never occurred to me. Jesus, and then Mary Joseph had a handful of kids. Imagine raising those kids after Jesus. What's wrong with these children? Why aren't they like Jesus? Well, he's a Messiah, but I mean, come on. Can you imagine the conversations that happened around the table after the kids were in bed, Mary and Joseph talking about the day? I didn't think about that until this, just, just, just this week. Imagine that. How difficult. I mean, as a parent, I try not to be biased. I love this kid more than the rest of them. All right? But if it's Jesus and the rest of them, And you say, okay, uh, he's Jesus. No, just think of it from a parenting perspective. He's Jesus. I don't have to say, hey, what did I tell you to do? Go clean up your room. Never. He's Jesus. These other ones. (laughs) This is the situation that Mary's looking into. And then, Joseph. This... So if you would have asked me before this year, I would have said, yes, I know that. But it had never, the dots had never all gotten connected to, at one point until this year. We know Joseph, according to Matthew chapter 1, is a just man. The word just literally means he, he fulfilled the law, he obeyed the law, he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. He's a spouse to Mary, the love of his life. He loves her. Not just, oh, not just the Twitter-pated love before, like... He's invested in her. They're building a life together. And she says, Joseph, we need to talk. Joseph's first thoughts were the same as all of us would have been. She's been unfaithful. I love her. How could she do this to me? And we find how much Joseph loves her. We read Matthew chapter 1. What's it say? He didn't want to make her a public example. He had every right, and I think we could say every responsibility, to take her down to the temple and say, she needs to be stoned. She's been unfaithful. But he doesn't want to do that to her. He wants to put her away privately. It's kind of... While he's pondering this, trying to figure out how this happens... I also wondered, how did she tell him? Was it like, Joseph, come here, sit down, we need to talk? Or was it like, yeah, I need to tell you this. 
I don't know. But while Joseph is mulling all this over, and imagine the emotional strain, the mental strain, your life has just been ripped apart. The angel shows up. Let's add that to the pile. Joseph talks with the angel. After having this dream of this angel, he takes Mary as his wife. No questions asked. But think about what he's just done. He said, we loved her. That's the best choice. I agree. But this is not just this moment. This is when everybody finds out that Mary's pregnant, they're going to look at me. Because I didn't take her down to the temple. I'm a businessman. I'm a carpenter by trade. If I got my wife pregnant before we were married, I'd become the outcast. My business just disappeared. My job just went away. My family will not talk to me. I'll be an outcast. Think about the drama and the trouble and the distress that's weighing on Joseph now. Knowing he's doing the right thing, but having to pay the cost for what people think is the wrong thing. And then they go to Bethlehem. This had never occurred to me either. I feel like I didn't even read the Christmas story before this year. Okay? They traveled to Bethlehem. Why? To pay taxes. We'll talk about that in a minute. They show up because everyone had to go back to Bethlehem. Apparently, Bethlehem was a popular place. Why? Because there's no rooms left. He shows up. He's got to find a place not just to stay, to have a baby. They find a place. They have a baby. They lived in Bethlehem for a while. They didn't go back to Nazareth, and they didn't leave the next night to go to Egypt. They had to stay in Bethlehem. What happened when the wise men came? Jesus was a young child, somewhere below the age of two years old. That meant when they were in Bethlehem, he found a place to live. How did he pay for a place to live? I don't know. Asked my wife today. He's a carpenter. He has tools. I'm pretty sure he didn't take his tools, throw them all in the bag, and say, we're going to take this on the donkey with us when we go to Bethlehem. I don't think that... Did he go back to Nazareth to get his tools and come back? So he had a job? I don't know. He's got to come up with a way to support his family now. In Bethlehem. And then the wise men come. They bring gifts, and then the angel shows up again. He says, it's time for you to go, because Herod's on a manhunt, and he's hunting for your son. So he leaves and goes to a foreign nation. It wasn't bad enough. Leave your town, go to Bethlehem. Now find a way to support myself and a place for us to live. Now we have to leave the country. We have to flee into Egypt. Now it's fulfilling prophecy. All of these things are fulfilling prophecy in the Old Testament. Now he's got to find a way to support his family with a new baby in a foreign nation. This is not just, oh, the Messiah will do whatever is necessary. This tore his life apart. And then... Him and Mary have more kids after this. He's got the same problem that Mary does. How do we raise these kids? B- based on Jesus, that's not a valid measuring stick with children. Right? A perfect child and these other children. That kind of stuck in my brain. I don't have any perfect children, by the way. So, Now, let's talk about Caesar Augustus. You say, he's not part of the story. Yes, he is. 
He's the emperor of Rome at this time period. What we know today as we study history, Octavian. Uh, the, the reign of Octavian began what was known as the Pax Romana. It's the peace of Rome. It was a time period of 200 years in which Rome wasn't fighting all these other nations around it. Now, we said, oh, so everything was just great. No. Because Octavian's rise to power was the typical rise of most of the Caesars of Rome. We hack everybody that's in our way, and I end up being the only one alive to take the throne. And then I have to hack everybody below me to keep the throne. That's Caesar Augustus' pattern. And so to fund the projects that he's doing, which he does some projects, he institutes a tax. Not just, hey, go to your local place, pay some tax. No. You had to go back to the place where your family's from. So think about that for a moment. Most of us are not from here. You have to travel home where you came from to pay a tax. Now, we don't like paying taxes. Imagine if you had to travel somewhere to pay that tax and not, oh, we got to go down to the, you know, the community center, we got to go down to the courthouse. No, you got to travel to Pennsylvania on a donkey to pay tax. I would not be a happy traveler. There's no way. And then, let's talk about Simeon. Jesus is born. The eighth day, they take him to the temple to be circumcised according to the law. And when they show up, there's this old guy. We don't know how old, but there's this old guy. And when he sees them walk in with their eight-year-old baby, eight-day-old baby, he's like, the Messiah! Now, those of you who have had children, ponder this. An old guy you've never met in Jerusalem, the biggest temple in the nation, comes up and picks up your baby out of your arms. This is, Simeon has been waiting years, and the Bible tells us that God told Simeon, you will not die until you see the Messiah. But he's had to live all those years waiting for that to happen, and waiting for that to happen. I'm sure he told people. We know that Anna was there in the temple as well. Simeon has told people, the Messiah is going to be here before I die. And they're like, okay, sure, Simeon, all right, whatever, buddy. Hope you have a good night. People look at Simeon like he's nuts. Then there's Anna. Anna had a rough life. She gets married. We don't know how old. Typical age during Bible times, 12, 14 years old. She gets married. She's married for seven years. No children, and her husband dies. Okay, so she achieved, and this that's going to sound terrible, she achieved the feat of getting married. She found a husband. The goal of getting married in Bible times was to have children with the possibility of having the Messiah. She gets married, but doesn't have children, and her husband dies. And so she dedicates herself to the service of the Lord. Now, the Bible gives us some numbers we can calculate. I did a little quick calculation. This is not a Bible number. This is the Davies number. But according to the calculation that I made, she's over 100. She's lived 100 years waiting for the the Messiah. Going through trouble, trial, the loss of her husband, then living in the temple by herself. 
spending her days praying, fasting. You say, well, that's great. She's drawing close to God. I understand. But then she looks around at all the people around her, friends she grew up with, had kids, had grandkids, had a good life, what she considers to be a good life. She said, well, I would never trade what I had. Anna would, she would never say, I'd trade what I had for what that lady over there has. No. But it still wears on her. I think her and Simeon probably talked about the coming of the Messiah. But the people probably looked at her just like they looked at Simeon. Oh, yeah, you've been hanging out with Simeon, huh? <laughs> okay. Then the Magi. Wise men. Men who studied the movement of heavenly bodies. Not astrology, astronomy. The study of what's there. And all of a sudden, that star's never been there before. Where did that come from? Hold on a second. I remember reading about this Messiah and a star. We need to go meet this guy, the king of the Jews. And so they look up, and as, as I studied this, they didn't know where they were going. We're following that star, but it doesn't say, oh, yes, when we follow that star, it's going to end up over here. Now, they knew that the, the, the prophecy said Bethlehem. But where do they go? They follow the star, and where does it lead them? To Jerusalem. They end up in Herod's throne room. They go on a journey that they don't really know where they're going to end. It's costing them money and time. They meet Herod, and Herod has no clue. He's like, what? What do you mean a king of the Jews? And he turns to his guys and says, hey, what's the deal? And they're like, well, I don't know. We'll go find out. And so the Magi like, hey, you should probably look in here. Micah, Hosea. All right. Gives them, and they find, oh, Bethlehem. And so Herod says, okay, go find him and tell me where he is so I can come worship him too. Now these magi, I don't think were these kind of guys that were easily fooled. I think they knew exactly what Herod was up to. But then the Bible tells us, and I had not, had not noticed this, they go and they talk with Herod, the star reappears. And when you look at a map, the star all of a sudden begins to move in a direction stars do not move. It moves from north to south. Stars move from east to west. Why? So that's where our earth rotates. All of a sudden, this star starts moving south, and they're like, hold on a second. Let's, let's go. We're following the star. And they follow the star, and it stops. Where does it stop? In Bethlehem. And they go into the house. Mary and Joseph have been there for a while. We don't know exactly how long. And they present gold, frankincense, and myrrh to this Messiah, the King of the Jews. They realize we have a choice. What do we do now about this Herod guy? Because if we go back and tell him, there's going to be some kind of repercussions. But if we don't tell him, there's going to be some kind of repercussions. And then they're warned of by an angel. Angels had a lot of work to do during this time period. They were showing up talking to everybody. They're warned to go home a different way. So they travel a different way. Herod finds out he's been... I don't know what you would call it, not scammed, but been taken advantage of. And Herod gets mad. What do we know about Herod? Uh, he was the king over a region in what we call today Israel. He had no claim to the throne. 
No claim by Jewish blood, nothing. In fact, the Jews hated him because he didn't belong there. He was constantly trying to keep the Jews happy, but also do what he wanted to do, and also keep Caesar happy, and also do what he wanted to do, and then keep the Jews happy also. So many things, his, his life was a wreck. History tells us Herod was a violent man. Him, when we look at historical records, we don't find any record of him killing all the babies in Bethlehem. Why? That's normal. He killed some of his own children. He killed some of his own wives. Herod was exactly what you would expect. He was vindictive. He was jealous. Bad guy. All of the people we've talked about tonight, life was filled with trouble, with distress, with issues. I told you it wasn't encouraging. So what? He said, Mr. Davies, all he told us is bad stuff. I know. This is where we bring the plane down. Look at Psalm 138 with me, would you? Psalm 138, look at verse number 7. This is the verse that came to mind as I read the Christmas story this year. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. What do we learn from looking at all these people this evening? There's three things I'd like you to remember. First of all, God's plan is. You say, Mr. Davies, isn't there supposed to be stuff at the end of that sentence? No. God has a plan. It's in motion, and it's going to work. I told my wife what we were preaching about, well, what I was considering preaching about this morning. And then we spent the day digging in my yard trying to find a water leak. It's one of the problems with preaching. Whatever you're going to preach about, you've got to practice before you preach. God's plan is. It's already in motion. God already placed the pieces that I needed to solve the problem I face today in motion before I knew the problem. You think about all these people, we talk about all nine of them. The plan was already in motion. It was already being fulfilled in spite of what it looked like. But not just God's plan is, God's plan is good. Now, good is a word we use very apathetically. One of the things that I have been trying to do in the last years when, when I write, when I speak, I try to use words that communicate the size of what I'm trying to say. This word good in the Bible, literally, there is no bad part of it. Think about God's plan in each one of their lives. He was up to something that was good. Good for them. So what about Herod? The Savior's been born. Herod had an opportunity to receive Christ, just like everybody else. But not just God's plan is, not just God's plan is good, God's plan is good for me. I thought of Zechariah and Anna. 
Simeon, Elizabeth, going through the majority of their life looking forward, but you've looked forward to stuff too, hoping that it's going to happen. Now, we know that God promised, and so it will happen, but waiting is the hardest part of what we, what we run into in life. And what happened? God's plan was good for them. God fulfilled His prophecy to Simeon. God showed Anna what she was looking for. God gave Zechariah and Elizabeth the child that they so greatly desired. Why? Because God's plan was already in motion, and it was good, and it was for them. Each one of us right now is facing something. Most of us, if we're honest, are facing some things. Sometimes it feels like we're surrounded. And we just, it's like, I, I whack this mole and another one. And I whack that one and another one. And I whack this one and another And they just don't go away. Why? It's going to sound harsh. That's life. Each one of the people that we've talked about tonight, they're constantly facing trouble, facing problems, facing things they don't know how near. But it's okay. Why? That's life, and God's plan is still in motion. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then, then am I strong. We're facing something good. God has a chance to work now. I started thinking about this this afternoon, and I'm sure I missed one. But I started thinking, okay, at what point in the Bible was everything going great and then God did something? Couldn't really think of any time. Couldn't really think of a time where things are going, things are just going great. All of a sudden, God does something miraculous. When does God do something miraculous? When things don't look great. As I've looked at these verses in Psalm 138, a word caught my attention. I want you to look there in verse number 8. The Bible says the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. That word perfect means to complete, to finish. Facing something tonight? I am. God will finish the work He started. His plan's in motion. It's for you, and it's going to end well. But what do we have to do? We have to do the same thing that Simeon and Anna and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary and Joseph had to do. They had to trust God. Let Him do what He had in plan. So tonight, I want to encourage you to remember this. God's plan is. He's got a plan. It's already in motion. And it's good. It's going to be good for you. The Bible tells us that all things Work together for good. And God's plan is designed for you. What I'm dealing with, God made for me. To teach me, show himself strong. Don't forget, as I looked at the Christmas story, that this came home. God did this. So that we know the Christmas story, yes. But so that we know that not everything is great. Not everything is wonderful. We just, oh, this is wonderful. This is happening right now. I'm just so happy. No, 
most of the time stuff's happening and we're not okay with this. We don't like it. It's not what we prefer. It's not what we would choose. But we're not choosing. God's trying to teach us something. 